and everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. The Chosen Season 3 begins in theaters November 18th. Learn more at fathomevents.com. Did you approve of the sermon? A little long, but effective. (laughs) I just, by faith, prayed a prayer. And I felt a complete change in my life. And as I got up from my knees, I wiped off my tears and I took out all the rounds, put away my gun, and I got in my car and I went looking for my wife because I wanted to tell her what happened to me. My, uh, we're just a few minutes away from that story and how Raul Reese went from a terrible, desperate place to becoming a believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, This is Focus on the Family with your host, Focus President Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. This is an amazing testimony, and it illustrates how much God cares about every single one of us. Let's get right to the message, John. All right, here's Raul Reese, and as you can probably tell, this is not going to be appropriate for younger listeners. Raul is speaking at Calvary Chapel Golden Springs in Southern California on today's episode of Focus on the Family. My father had a very bad, bad habit. He had a problem with drinking, big-time drinking. Started drinking when he was about nine years old. And um, just really uh, a time of uh, chaotic because what happened in our home, our home was not a normal home. Our home was a, a home where, you know, I rem- as far as I can remember back when I was a little kid, where my father would come home and would be yelling and cursing and slapping my mother and physically abusing my grandmother and my mother at the same time, which was his mother. And I remember us when we were little kids screaming and yelling because we were so frightened by this whole thing. And at the same time, I remember my dad taking me at the age of five years old because I was his eldest son, taking me to the nightclubs and the bars. And I remember my father just, I mean, he was a brawler. You know, he used to like to fight. He had a beautiful job at the Bank of Mexico. And, but at the same time, the problem with drinking led him to violence. And um, I remember sitting outside while he would go inside and drink for three, four, five hours, sitting outside in a little newsstand waiting for him to come out as he would leave me there with his, with his people to wait for him to come out. And when he would come out, he would be so drunk that he used to have a, one of these uh, European scooters and he got on it and we, and by the grace of God, we never got, we, we dropped it a couple times and uh, we, we got home every time by the grace of God. But through this whole experience as I was growing up, it was just a time where I remember my dad, you know, with me also, uh, by the time I was about eight, and I mean, physically just taking me and, and hitting me and just beating me, you know, because I was so rebellious against everything that was going on. And I remember at the age of eight or nine years old thinking, you know, one of these days I want to kill my dad. That was, that was my life. I wanted to, my, my goal was to kill and execute my father. That was my whole goal in my life. In 1957, uh, we, uh, right after the major earthquake in Mexico City, which was a real big earthquake, my uh, grandmother, my mom's mother and sister, and my grandfather were living in L.A. And so they gave my mother an invitation to come up and leave my father. So one night when my father came home, totally passed out, drunk, on, he came drunk and he passed out on the bed. 
Uh, that night, my mother woke us up early in the morning, about four in the morning, and told us to get dressed. We got dressed and we went to the international airport in Mexico. But I remember the going to the airport and getting on his plane and leaving Mexico City at the age of 10 years old and coming to America and being in America. And I remember how happy I was because, man, now we're rid of my dad. No more drinking, no more cursing, no more violence. And now we're going to be so joyous being here in America. And I remember in 1959, uh, my father began to write in 58 to my mother that he wanted to change his life and that he wanted to come to America and live with us because he missed us so much. And uh, I remember being a little kid, 10 years old, hating my mother because my mother said okay to my father. And I didn't want my dad to come and live with us. But she went ahead and got his, because she was an American citizen. And so she actually worked out his papers and, and, and got it all set up. Took about nine months. And finally my dad came up to the, to the States. We were living in, in L.A. And I, I never forget when he got there. I mean, I didn't have any feelings for him. I was so bitter at him at, at the age of 10. And again, he, he began to drink and began again to abuse my mom. And I remember at the age of 15 having a lot of confrontations with my father. And so I began to become violent. I began to, you know, take my frustrations and the anger that I had in me when we would go to parties, when we go out on the streets and I would start, you know, beating up people or hurting people. And this went on for, for the four years of high school. I played sports. I was in, an athlete and played baseball and doing very well in baseball. And my, my grades were not that good because I didn't, I didn't really study. I, I, I partied a lot, you know. And so what happened is that on my senior year, when I was down in West Cabina, I got in a, in a brawl with um, this guy that uh, was doing something, you know, with one of my girlfriends. And I went and got all my friends, and we came to the party, and we, we ripped the party. And I mean, we ripped people, and this guy almost died. So they came to the high school the next day, and the police came and picked us up, and they took us in. And they booked us, and we had to go to court and the whole thing. And uh, at the time, I was 18 already. We were seniors, and we were just about to graduate. And uh, I got put in a position where either I was going to go to prison or I would have the opportunity the judge gave me to go into the military. Well, at that time, I said, you know why Vietnam was going on? I said, well, I just go to Vietnam. You know, license to kill. I can do whatever I want to do. Uh, I remember leaving the port of San Diego as I was going to Vietnam. It took about 20-some days to get to Vietnam. And I'll never forget, you know, leaving the, the land. And I was an unbeliever thinking... Well, if I'm going over and I'm going to die, what's going to happen? I didn't even think about eternal life. I didn't even think about life after death. And all I could think about is that I'm going to Vietnam and, and I'm going to kill me some people. I mean, that was my heart. And I remember when we got to uh, Da Nang and, we, and they sent us to our own units. And I went to Alpha Company 17 uh, and they put me with the 7th Marine Division, uh, 1st Marines. And uh, they put me on this, on this platoon which was a, um, a platoon that went uh, actually on special missions. There were seven of us. We were called the Bounty Hunters. And we would go down to the riverbeds and we would set up camp and uh, we would watch and we would click to see how many VC were coming down to the trails. And then we would report back. And it became sort of a... sort of like a... I can't say a game. It became part of a 
a, a part of my life where as I began to see some of my friends get killed, the hatred that came for the Asian person. And finally, after 11 months of being in Vietnam and doing all the things, they finally, they finally caught up with us in the government. They called us in and uh, they sent us, first of all, to a psychiatrist to make sure that they would check us out to see what was wrong with us. And uh, when I came to the psychiatrist, he looked at me and said, well, you know, uh, what seems to be your problem? I said, my, uh, I think first of all, my problem is you. You know, I don't like you. And I, I said, all I want to do is I want to get out of this place. And he says, well, I don't think that's possible. I said, I said, if you don't make it possible, I said, I'm going to kill you right now. And so he got a piece of paper, started writing all kinds of stuff down, you know. And so he wrote pretty fast. And then he gave me this piece of paper. And he says, I want you to go to the captain and give them to, uh, to your platoon leader. Give him this piece of paper. So when I went back, I didn't know what he had written. But they told me to pack up all my sea bags, get my locker box, everything that I was leaving town, you know. So I got everything packed up and... Uh, they sent me back to uh, Da Nang, and when I got to Da Nang, to the airport, to actually board a, one, a C-130, uh, they, uh, they came out, the MPs, and they uh, put shekels in my feet and my hands. And I thought I was going home, but I guess I was not. They put me in this plane, and they tied me up, and uh, flew me to Japan, and from Japan to the Philippines, and from the Philippines to Guam, and from Guam, they flew me to Travis Air Force Base up northern California. We landed, and there was a paddy wagon waiting for me, and they put me with my shackles inside, and they put a straight jacket on me, and they took me to uh, Oakland Naval Hospital, which I spent six months of my life under psychological care, but most under drugs and being a, in, in, in a jacket because I was so violent. It's like Satan had taken possession of my life. Uh, at that particular time, they were starting in the 60s, what was called synonym. There were like therapy sessions where you come in in a group session and you talk and you tell them your problems. Well, every time it would come to my problems, I would become so violent and start beating up on everybody. They'd take me away and, you know, put me away and they, and I, and they just couldn't talk. And so after six months, Dr. Wilson decided that I was not fit not only for the Marine Corps, but I wasn't fit to go back to Vietnam uh, for a second tour, but I was only fit to be discharged with a dishonorable discharge. So I said, well, whatever happens, happens. I said, you know, I just want to get out of here. And um, they sent me out to Camp Pendleton to the 5th Marine Division, and they were recommending a dishonorable discharge in my life. And I remember when I was at Camp Pendleton, they had me actually locked up, and uh, that's when I, my wife was in high school with me, and we had actually fallen in love through letters in Vietnam. And uh, they allowed me to uh, have a couple of times, you know, off where I can go and, you know, and see my, my family. And uh, that's at the time when me and Sharon got together and she got pregnant. And so they gave me uh, time to get married and uh, I was still in the Marines and uh, my district hadn't come back yet and I was real against the whole thing and finally it came back in September 15, 1967. I'll never forget that day when they called me in and said, hey, your discharge is back and it's an honorable discharge. By the convenience of the government, I said, wow. And I got out, and I went out and went and saw my wife and told her that I was out of the Marine Corps, got a job in L.A. working for the Union Bank, and you know, started doing my thing. And the moment I got out, immediately, I started going back, not only to my old friends, but I started going back to my old life. But this time, I was a little bit older, even though I was only 21 years old at that time. Uh, it, it's amazing how the war had matured me tremendously. And um, I wasn't afraid to kill now. I wasn't afraid to do anything. 
And so when we would go to parties or whatever we would do, it was just chaotic in the things that we would do. And my wife would never preach to me. She would share the gospel with me by, by sharing her, you know, her, her love with me, but never giving me tracks or you know, putting tracks in my sandwiches and I bite down and you know, Jesus loves nothing like that, or putting stickers up, never like that. But just her life living. And, and, and one thing that I never wanted to do, I never wanted to be like my dad, where I would become a physical abuser. Well, I did. The first thing that I did is I started, you know, pushing her around and kicking her and punching her. And pretty soon I was choking her. And by the grace of God, the angels protected her. And it went on for about four and a half years until finally, uh, she finally decided that she's going to leave me. And when she was going to leave me, I decided that nobody would ever have her. And I would, I would chase for my kids. And the best way to do that is to execute her and my kids and kill myself as the police would come. I'd just shoot her out with the police. That would be the end of everything. And then nobody wins. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. Financial Moments with Tom Copeland. First Timothy chapter 6, Paul warns that even Christians can struggle with the love of money. Here's what he said, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Some indicators of the love of money would include excessive hard work, little involvement in ministry, limited time with God, giving very little to God's work, or a selfish lifestyle. Regardless of how much money and material things you accumulate, in Ecclesiastes 5.10, God warns that the attitude of the love of money will never be satisfied. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. What's the solution? Jesus tells us to get our priorities right when he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Matthew 22.37 In other words, focus on God's priorities, not money and material things. Hockey practice, grocery store runs, doctor's appointments. It's no wonder why busy families like yours need two or more vehicles. Deeks Insurance understands, and that's why they can help you save when you insure more than one vehicle. It's one of the ways Deeks puts families first. As a licensed insurance brokerage, they've been looking out for families like yours since 1981. Because Deeks believes you should slow down and enjoy life and not worry about car insurance costs. Visit deeksinsurance.ca to get a quote. Deeks Insurance, where family matters. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. We'll continue now with the balance of our programming. And so when I got home, uh, she already had gone to church. As a matter of fact, it was Easter Sunday, April 15, 1972. And I already had made up my mind I was going to kill her. So I came home. And I saw her bags were packed on the side and I walked into the house and went to the closet and got my gun and loaded up my gun with 18 rounds and um, I started walking around the house and I started destroying my whole house, you know, just knocking down everything. And I went next to the TV stage, to the TV, and I was standing there and, I mean, I was so angry and so uh, mad inside that I took the, the butt of the rifle and I hit the TV and when I hit it, it came on. And when the TV came on, there was, this was this guy, bald-headed guy talking about... <laughs> about Jesus. It was, it was Chuck Smith. <laughs> and he was with Catherine Kuhlman, you know, in one of the sperms with all the hippies. And I was listening to the man, I, I, and I said, man, I wanted to shoot him, you know, with my gun. I couldn't pull the trigger. And it seemed like when he talked, to, when he was talking to the TV, 
He was talking to me, you know how that is. It's like a bow was being pulled back and the arrows were letting go and they were stabbing me in the heart. And I kept saying, man, why don't you shut up? What, what are you trying to say, you know? And all of a sudden I found myself that I, I, I began to put my ear more to it. And then I found myself that as I was listening, I found myself on my knees and for the first time in my life, I began to cry like a baby. You know, it's not too cool to cry when you're heartened. And I just began to tell God, God, if you're really real and you're a real God and you are a God that can save people as you save my wife, I want you to come into my life. And you know what blew me away? I didn't see lightning. I didn't see any, I didn't have any feeling or anything emotional. I just by faith prayed a prayer. And I felt a complete change in my life. And as I got up from my knees, I wiped off my tears and I took out all the rounds, put away my gun and I got in my car and I went looking for my wife because I wanted to tell her what happened to me. I couldn't find her. I got to the church where she was and they were actually, at that time they were having the altar call so I just went up to the altar call and once they counseled me the whole thing, I went home and when I got home, I knocked on the door and the light was on already, my wife was at home and I heard her weeping and crying inside. And I knocked on the door. I said, Sharon, open the door. It's me. And, and she was just, you know, crying the whole thing. And she, what she did, she put the latch on the door. And she opened the door and she said, what do you want? I said, I said I'm born again. I accepted Christ. She shut the door in my face, you know. She didn't really believe it. And so I, I knocked again and I, and I said, Sharon, honest, I, I've accepted the Lord. I'm, I'm going to change my whole life. And she finally opened the door. And it took probably about a year and a half to two years for her to watch my life change. To really watch my life change. But what blew her away is that immediately, I mean, I got saved, man. I got saved. I went the next day to a Christian bookstore and I bought me a Bible. And I didn't know anything about Bibles, so I was looking at Bibles. There were little Bibles, big Bibles, you know, huge Bibles. And so I got me the biggest Bible I could because I wanted to be, you know... A, a Christian so I got me this big old family Bible and at that time you know the hippies we had long hair and stuff and they had these uh, fishes that you have the uh, Greek writing Jesus Christ God Son and Savior in Greek and they had little ones and middle medium sized ones and then they had these big sharks you know they were like that I got me the biggest one I could with a leather thing and I put it on I didn't even care I just wanted everybody to know that I was a Christian and can you imagine a big Bible big fish walking around you know and so as, as we were doing this whole thing, I, I got home and I, I just, every morning I began to read the Bible and I, I started going to Chuck Smith's church and I, I got down there and I began to get rooted and grounded and buy the tapes and buy the books and read. And then the Lord called me, this was weird, about a week later the Lord called me and I mean, I, I didn't hear His voice, but I had like, I was sitting there reading my Bible and praying and I had like a vision. I've never had a vision in my life, I don't even know what it was. But I saw myself awake and half asleep and I saw my old high school. And I saw my principal and my vice principal and I saw all these hundreds of kids. And the Lord told me, I want you to go back to your old high school. I said, okay. So I waited and I prayed and then I went to Baum Park High School. 1972, I remember. I walked on the campus and Dr. Hollenbeck and, and, and Barnhol were, was the assistant principal and he was my baseball coach before. And... I remember walking up and I had the fish, the tuna, the Bible. And I walked in. And the next thing I know is the police are escorting me off the campus. 
because they think I'm nuts. They don't want me on campus. And so I went home totally bummed out, man, thinking, oh, man, what's going to happen now? And so I went home, and God spoke to me again. Go back to Bombay High School. I go, oh, Lord. They just kicked me out. They called the police. The police told me, if I come back again, they're going to put me in jail. Go back to Bomb Park High School. Okay, I'm going to go back. I went back the following week, and Mr. Barnholm and Mr. Hollenbeck took me in their office, and they talked to me, and they gave me permission to be on campus. Now, check this out. To be on campus and to go into the classrooms and to be outside of the classrooms on the mall area, and I could talk to people about Jesus Christ because they knew me from before. So I started at lunchtime. I would sit out on the grass area, and all these kids would look at me with my fish and my Bible, and they hated me. And all of a sudden, man, incoming missiles, cake, milk. And they were bombarding me with stuff, man. I was so mad. I go, Lord, I, I don't need this stuff. I don't even want to be here. And the Lord told me to be there. So a couple of weeks went by, a couple of months went by, and I stood there faithfully every day. And then all of a sudden, when the Lord began to open the doors, as kids began to come and talk to me, and I talked to them. And then one day, on the mall area at Bond Park High School, the Lord told me at lunchtime, you know how lunchtime are at high schools. Everybody's doing their own thing. And we have no PA. And I'm not a screamer. And he says, get up on this picnic bench, and I want you to talk to them about me. So I got up there and started, hey, for God so loved the world, man, that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whosoever would give, you know, I'm just this whole thing. And as I was talking, making a fool of myself, I thought, the Holy Spirit was zapping people. The Holy Spirit fell on our school so heavily that all of a sudden, as I looked out, there were about three to five to six hundred kids sitting on the grass, listening. What blew me away is I didn't expect God to use my life. Because who was I? And as I began to just share with them God's love, I said, anybody here wants to accept Jesus Christ? 500 kids got up and came on their knees and gave their life to Jesus Christ. And I mean, the school is totally blown away. And then Gladstone High School opened up, Azusa High School opened up. Uh, Charter Rock High School opened up, Glendora High School opened up, and I was doing seven high schools a week, just going on the streets. That's how my ministry started. I never thought, I never expected that God would do such a tremendous work that He has done over the last 25 years. I never dreamed that God would do such a thing. And I'm only telling you this tonight because I know there are some of you here that God wants to use your life. And I've been, you know, I mean, just in incredible places that I never thought that God would take me and how my book and my movie has not only gone into so many languages, but, I mean, it's gone all over the world and how God has used that testimony. And yet, it's because of Jesus Christ. But one thing that I have learned in 25 years is that it's important that we become obedient to the call of God. Because 25 years of my life has passed me on so fast, so fast, that I figure maybe I got 10, 15 years left if the Lord tarries, or maybe more, depending on whatever He has. That if I don't give my life completely to Him now, and we don't go for it completely, then what's going to happen to the world? What's going to happen to our loved ones and our friends? 
if we're not sold out to Jesus Christ, what's going to happen? They're going to go to hell. That's why it's so important, young people and mothers and fathers, that you're totally committed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I don't care what you've done. God forgives us. We've all blown it. But God is a God of second and third and fourth and fifth and a hundred and thousand chances. If we're sincere in our commitment to Him, don't waste any more of your days or your years in the Lord. Get rooted. Get grounded. Get a hunger. Get a vision in your life. And ask God, God, what do you want me to do for you? And I guarantee you that He will tell you. If you're willing to do that, He will do you do that. You know why? Because He loves you. He loves you so much that He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And I just pray for each one of you that you would give your life completely to Him. Don't play games with Him anymore. And I think that God wants to do some tremendous thing. I believe God's going to send a revival if we, His people, will humble ourselves and repent. And if we humble ourselves before God, and if we confess our sins before God, then He will send His Holy Spirit, and He will begin to do things that you can even believe. But He needs your heart first. He wants your life completely. Today on Focus on the Family, we've been hearing from Raul Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel, Golden Springs, and President of Somebody Loves You Ministries. Wow, uh, what an amazing testimony of how the Lord can change a person. I mean, Pastor Reese went from wanting to kill his wife and kids to being an evangelist and the pastor of a large, thriving church. That's evidence God is so good. And I just keep thinking about how Pastor Reese described that Easter morning going through his own house, smashing things with a loaded rifle until he hit the TV and it came on. Uh, What are the odds of that? And right there on that television set was Pastor Chuck Smith, the founder of uh, Calvary Chapel, talking about the love of God. And his words knocked Rawl to his knees. And the amazing transformation began right there on his living room floor. And boy, if you're on the fence about Christianity, I hope you really heard what Pastor Reese was saying there. And that you'll give your life completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has the answers that you are seeking. And he is waiting for you to turn to him. If you'd like to learn more about the Christian faith and what it means to be a Christian... We'd recommend our free e-booklet called Coming Home. It will give you all the information you need. And there's even a prayer included if you'd like to ask Jesus into your heart. You'll find the Coming Home booklet at focusonthefamily.ca. And if you're already a Christian, let me remind you that Focus on the Family is here to spread the good news of the gospel and encourage you in your marriage and your parenting journey. Of course, there are costs involved in getting these radio programs on the air every day. So please support this broadcast if you can. Pastor Reese's testimony is living proof that Christian media can make a big difference in a person's life. 
their eternal life. In fact, over the last year, over 170,000 people said they made a decision for Christ because of Focus on the Family. Join us as we help those families thrive in Christ. And when you get in touch, ask about how to get a CD copy of this testimony from Pastor Raul Reese so that you can listen again or share it with a family member or friend. You can get your CD when you call 800, the letter A in the word family, 800-232-6459, or donate online as you can and request that CD at focusonthefamily.ca. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller inviting you back as we once more help you and your family thrive in Christ.